following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Title of our morning's message is Christ Exalting Fellowship. Christ Exalting Fellowship. And we're going to be in the book of Philippians. And we're going to be flipping around a little bit in this book uh, today. So get ready. Okay? Yeah. No pun intended. Let me, uh, let me pray for us, all right? Father, we want to thank you for the privilege that it is to come before you to worship you, to lift your name up high, Lord, with our, our praises, Lord. We come before you, Lord, only because of what you've done in and through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And even now, Lord, as we get into your word, we want to see you exalted. We want to see you honored. We want to see your name lifted high, Lord. And we want to live out the implications of that sweet love bond relationship that we have with you and the way that we live and the way that we interact with one another and in our mission and purpose here on this earth, Father. Help us to walk away changed. Help us to walk away being not just hearers who are self-deceived, but doers of your word, who put into practice the things that we hear. And we ask you all these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as you know, our focus this month here at Calvary is on the spiritual discipline of fellowship. Last week we saw... Uh, and we heard from Pastor Carnes that really fellowship is a lot more profound and more substantial than we often think of it. Uh, we tend to define fellowship, I'm sure you would agree, in the sense of, of organized events, social interaction with one another, uh, things like potlucks, which are my favorite, by the way. I love potlucks, but, uh, interaction over a good meal. Um, but while social interaction is to be encouraged and sought after, Social activities are really the byproduct of something more profound. Really, we might call it a more objective reality um, of what has happened that calls us to live this out in the way that we interact toward one another. In other words, there is something that that God has done to bring me into fellowship with himself that has nothing to do with anything that I have done. In fact, Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, where he says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So in salvation, the Spirit has supernaturally baptized us into the body of Christ. Therefore, we are one in Christ. This is independent of anything I have done. God has done this miracle in bringing me into fellowship with himself, reconciling me with himself, and now we are a part of a body. We may call this the objective side of fellowship. We don't contribute to that. It's a miracle of God. It's a work of God. But there is also a subjective side of fellowship, which really has to do with our experience of Christian fellowship. Because we are to live in such a way that shows this fellowship very visibly and practically and joyfully, I'm sure you would agree. Amen? In a way that shows that we are living for something bigger than ourselves. But this is where I believe that sadly many of us as Christians 
have lost sight of the great benefit of fellowship. Because we are people that have been saved to live very differently. And yet, for many of us, fellowship has become out of fashion or unnecessary, we think, for spiritual growth. We have forgotten how precious fellowship really is to the believer. We have forgotten to live out the practical implications of fellowship with one another and how we are called to live very differently on this earth, beloved, in light of the fact that we are in fellowship with Christ. See, our priorities are to be very different. And God taught me a lesson a few years ago about the beauty and the power of fellowship. When I visited Haiti in 2010, a little bit after the massive 7.0 earthquake had hit there, I arrived in Port-au-Prince to visit some pastors there. And and one of the pastors asked me to preach on Sunday morning at one of the churches there whose building had completely fallen and it was basically a heap of rubble. And um, little did I know, I showed up that Sunday morning and you would think after this kind of devastation, nobody would show up given the mass devastation. But when we got there, it was very surprising and it was amazing to see that a bunch of churches had come together. To, they set up this massive tent with chairs and mats all over the place so that they could actually partake of a worship service together and fellowship together. And closely by, a few feet away, were the masses of rubble all over the place of their fallen structures. Yet they were there to worship God together and fellowship together. Some of these believers, think about it, had lost loved ones. Some of these believers, uh, their loved ones had been impacted by the earthquake. They had lost homes and possessions. But they were there because they lived for something bigger than what had happened, beloved. And it was very evident in the way that they interacted toward one another. And that day, in 110 degree heat plus humidity, I learned a great lesson. That regardless of the devastation of their circumstances, these believers had come together, they had to come together to worship God in fellowship with one another because their fellowship was grounded upon a greater and deeper reality than their external circumstances and the tragedy and the devastation that had hit. And fellowship was so sweet that day. The time was wonderful, preaching and singing and enjoying a meal together and talking over a meal about the the impact of the gospel progressing in Haiti and in the Dominican Republic and in other countries in the light of what had happened in this devastation, see? Discussing how they might even partner together for the sake of the gospel, even in the midst of this devastation. Beloved, I wonder if for some of us, fellowship is sweet in the same way. I wonder if we are living for something bigger than self. I believe that for many Christians, fellowship has lost its luster and beauty. Fellowship is no longer really something that we seek after. It is a burden, an added burden to an already burdensome life. It is a wasted time with people that we have very little to nothing in common with. For some professing Christians, they go years and years without any type of commitment to God's people. And they call themselves Christians. And don't you dare ever say to these professing believers that they may not be saved if this is the pattern of their lives. Don't you dare say that. For many professing Christians, they claim to have a great personal relationship with Christ, yet their impact and their commitment with other believers is absent. And this is the pattern of their lives. And more significantly, if you were to look at some of these professing believers' lives... Life is not about the gospel. 
Life is about self-preservation, self-prosperity, self-fulfillment. They only come to church to see what emotional high they can get to appease a guilty conscience. Life is all about self-worship, sadly. Not about exalting Christ and loving His church and fulfilling the Great Commission. But the fact remains, beloved, listen, that if we are in fellowship with Christ, our priorities should be markedly different, should they not? Amen? Markedly different. So how do you know as a Christian that you are practically living out the implications of fellowship with Christ and with His people? What, is, what does this outward expression of fellowship look like in the way that you live and you interact with one another and in the goals and the, and the things that you pursue in life and your priorities? Because a, a love-bond relationship with Christ should forever change you. The collision that you've had with Christ should forever change you. So I want to help us. And from the book of Philippians, this is going to be more of a thematic sermon. I want us to examine two priorities that show that you are practicing biblical fellowship. Two priorities. And I have framed them as questions to help you and I examine if our relationship with Christ is really making a difference in the way that we live and the priorities that we carry out in our interaction with other believers and how we invest our time and our resources and our energies. And I'm going to tell you something right now. Don't tune me out. Amen? Don't tune this message out. Don't sit there and think, oh, this is a good sermon for such and such a person. I've done that. I can speak that way because I've, I know my own sinfulness. Don't tune me out. Ask yourself, are these two priorities a reality in my life? Am I any different in light of the relationship that I have with the Lord Jesus Christ? Okay? First question for your consideration is this. Are you actively cultivating loving relationships that are shaped by the gospel? Are you actively cultivating loving relationships that are shaped by the gospel? I'm sure you would agree that relationships are hard to cultivate. Amen? Some of them more than others. But frankly, I cannot imagine trying to cultivate loving relationships, beloved, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. I cannot even imagine that. For Christians, the fact that we are in fellowship with Christ and thus in fellowship with other believers makes all the difference in the world. Amen? It should shape the way that we interact with one another. The gospel should shape our social interaction with one another. And for the Apostle Paul, the gospel radically shaped his relationship with those that he interacted with, including the Philippians. In chapter 1, look with me there. He opens his letter in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, really expressing his love for these Philippians. And he does similar things when you read the, the, the letter to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, expressing, always expressing his love for these believers, for those whom he has led to the Lord perhaps, or he's come across that he's, that, that he's invested into. He does the same thing here in Philippians chapter 1. And notice this. Notice Paul's love for them. Chapter 1 verse 3 says, I thank my God. In all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. It had been approximately 10 years since, since Paul had founded this little church. You can get the background story in Acts chapter 16. 
Paul probably remembers the, the, the wonderful conversion of some women alongside of the, of the river in Acts chapter 16. And the church took off from there. The interaction that he had had with these believers and how he had invested into them. The truth of the gospel. And when he, now when he thinks about them, he's thankful for them. He thanks God. He directs his thanksgiving to the Lord as he thinks about his fellow brethren. And not only that, but in verse 4, he's always offering prayer with joy and, and, and his every prayer for them all. He, he's led into the throne of God to petition on behalf of his brethren because he loves his brethren. Because he wants them to grow. In fact, the content of Paul's prayer is in verses 9 through 11 where he prays for these Philippians that they would have an abounding love for one another. That they would love God and love one another. That they would have a discerning love. And a love that is, that is displayed and manifested in fruitfulness. Fruitful, righteous living. See, So he prays for them. And he does it, notice in verse 4, with joy. How many of us are driven many times to reluctantly pray for other believers? Because maybe they have, they have wronged us, they have hurt us, and it's very hard and it's more of a drudgery to pray for them rather than the labor of love. Amen? Paul does it with joy because he cares for them. And I want you to see this. It's not like these believers are perfect people. We can't say, oh, well, they didn't have the same issues that we do, Kempis. I mean, it's the church at Philippi. They, they were perfect, right? They didn't have issues of their own. Well, throughout the letter, we get glimpses of maybe perhaps some of the struggles that the Philippians were having. For example, in chapter 4, verse 2, Paul explicitly begins to deal with the issue of division amongst them. He even calls out two women, Yodia and Syntyche. So there was already the beginning signs of division amongst them. That was taking place. There was potentially grumbling and complaining in the light of their circumstances and persecution. So Paul exhorts them in chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or complaining. See? He encourages them at the end of chapter 1, to in, in the light of their opponents who are persecuting them, to stand firm in the midst of suffering. See? So they were perhaps shying away from suffering and persecution, man-fearing, and in chapter 3, he has, to, he has to exhort them concerning false teaching. Perhaps they are succumbing to false teachers. This was a church who had issues of their own, beloved, as we do. And yet, what is it that drove Paul to express himself with this type of love? Notice verse 5. He does this. He's thankful. He thinks about them favorably. He offers prayers to God with joy in his every prayer. Verse 5, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. There's that word, that word translated participation as the word koinonia, fellowship. See, he says, I feel this way about you. I'm thankful for you. I pray for you with joy in the light of the fact that you are fellowshippers with me in the gospel. See, his love for them was shaped by what had happened to them in the gospel. And he doesn't lose heart. Because they have issues. You know why? He says in verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. How oftentimes we begin to give up on one another and our love diminishes or grows cold because we discourage one another, because we rub each other the wrong way, because we let each other down. See, and we put the confidence in that believer who's dropping the ball and we don't know how to pray for them anymore. We're not thankful for them anymore. Paul's confidence wasn't in his, his weak brethren. His confidence was in the God who began a good work in them and would perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. See, 
Paul's confidence was on the work of God in their hearts and lives. He loves them because of that. God has done an amazing work. They have the same heavenly Father who's mightily working in and through them. And then he gets very expressive in verses 7 and 8. Notice, for it is only right for me to feel this way about you all. Think about it. Some of us men don't want to talk about feelings, right? Hey, 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 hey. Let's not talk about feelings. Okay, we're masculine here. Paul displays biblical masculinity with expressions of affection. Men. Notice, verse 7, It is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. There's that word koinonia again, by the way, partakers, with a little preposition in front of it, co-fellowshippers of grace with me. See? Verse 8, For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That word affection, there's one of the strongest terms in the Greek language to express affection and love. Literally, with the inward parts, he says. We talk about this with our our family. I've told Andrea oftentimes, I love you so much, honey, that my love, that it hurts. I love you kids so much that my love hurts. And what I mean by that is I love you deeper than you can even imagine. That's the idea here with Paul. I I love you with the affection of Christ Jesus, see? I love you. He has this deep affection for them, beloved. And the reason why he has that, so full of love and so full of expression, is because of the fact that they are partakers of grace with him in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, see? The gospel shapes his relationships with them. The gospel shapes his love for them. He is interested in cultivating loving relationships with the churches that he's founded because of the work of God in the gospel. See? What a beautiful, beautiful thing this is. So Paul is mindful of them with sweet memories. And because of the koinonia in the gospel, he's thankful for them. Because of the koinonia that they shared in the gospel, he prays for them. Because of the koinonia they share in the gospel, he he has confidence in God's work in them, that God is going to bring them to completion. See? Paul's love is a long-term kind of love, see? He's in it for the long haul with them because God is mightily working in and through his beloved brethren, see? In chapter 2, verse 12, he calls them my beloved. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Oh, how Paul loves these Philippian brethren, amen? And the gospel does that, doesn't it? The gospel shapes the way that we view one another, beloved. Or it should. It should. I got a great illustration of this uh, when I traveled to uh, the Dominican Republic a few years ago. And, and we, we had this pastor's conference where Haitian and Dominican Republic pastors were there at this conference. And if you don't know this, historically, tensions have always been present between Haitians and Dominicans, similar to the, to the relationship that some people, at the, and the board, Americans have at the border of Tijuana with Mexicans coming over illegally, right? And there's always this turmoil and why are you coming into the country illegally, pursue things legally. Haitians do that going into the Dominican Republic historically to try to find a better life because Haiti is a, is a dirt poor place to live, not very much opportunity. 
And would you believe that that infiltrated the church as well and impacted the way that fellow brothers, Haitian pastors and Dominican Republic pastors interacted with one another? So we are at this conference and they're both there. And it was very visibly seen that some of the Haitian pastors and Dominican Republic church pastors were basically on opposite sides of the room. Not all of them, but by and large, they were on opposite side of the room. There There was turmoil there. And as we talked from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22 on the the doctrine of the church and how Jesus Christ, the great peacemaker, had broken down the barrier, the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity contained in the law of commandments. And we expanded on that, that Jesus had died to bring Jews and non-Jews alike in Christ into one body and they had unity in Christ. Some of these brothers started to really get convicted as the spirit of God worked in their hearts. And at the end of this conference, a couple of them even shared that they, had, they needed to repent. Because for a long time, their own cultural baggage was brought into the church, and they were hostile toward other believers, other, other pastors in particular, who were Dominican. And the Dominican pastors did the same thing with the, toward the Haitian pastors. And they realized that rather than being full of hatred and bitterness and resentment toward one another, beloved, they had different relationships now that were to be shaped by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, they were to love one another. And even up to this day, many of them, some of them are going to be here at the Shepherds Conference. They are working together in partnership now for the progress of the gospel. See, that's what the gospel does, doesn't it? It shapes our relationships. This is why Paul after three marvelous chapters in the book of Ephesians, talking about the, how God has glorified Himself in the redemption of His Son, this great, glorious plan of God in redemption. Paul says in chapter 4 of Ephesians, because of this great work of God, in and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, they are charged in chapter 4 of Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel by being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. See? That's how they may magnify the gospel. See, we don't create unity, do we? Jesus has established unity by virtue of his death and his resurrection for all of those who are in Christ, for all of those who are in fellowship with Christ. We don't create unity, beloved. We're called to preserve it. The issue is not, are we one, if you're in Christ this morning? The issue is, are you functioning that way? Are you living as one? Amen? That's the question. And Ephesians 4 says you are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Because the gospel transforms our relationships with one another if we are believers. So you want to know the ultimate test of your maturity? You ready for this? How is your love life? How is your love life? Are you fervent in your love for other believers? Listen to me. Especially in a church like ours who's committed to the truth, and we hold love and truth tightly together, or we strive to, especially in a church that is committed to the truth. It is not how much you know. It is how much you take what you know regarding God and the way He calls us to live and flesh that out in a a delight toward God and a worship of God and a love for the brethren. See? It's not how much you know, beloved. Take it a step further. Is that fleshing out in the way that you live holy lives and love one another? Is it fleshing out or not? That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me what? Nothing. See, our problem is that we build way too many walls between one another. Would you agree? Way too many walls, even as believers. And you and I need to remember that in the gospel, beloved, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all came in the same way as Christians. Sinners saved by grace. But some of us sometimes walk around like we were a lot closer than the other guy. Right? And we carry that into the church. Like we were brought into fellowship with Christ differently. See? All we needed was just that little push that God gave us and we were in. No. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. You and I came in the same way, beloved. There is no one who stands on higher ground than another person here. If you are believers, you do not stand on higher ground than anyone else in here. It's by the grace of God that you're here. Amen? It's by the grace of God that we're here. No one is better than anyone else. I don't look around right now, and even when we dismiss later on, and some of you have wings on your back already because of how spiritual you are. (laughs) I didn't see anybody coming in here, and I was sitting in the back. I didn't see anybody floating in because of your spirituality. Okay? Everybody's in the same place. See? We're sinners saved by grace. That's why one of the most destructive sins in the church, listen to me, is partiality and favoritism. That should never exist in the church. Oh, how I grieve for Christians who seem to be afraid of polluting themselves with the dirt of somebody else's lives. I grieve for that. From people who rub them the wrong way. Who condescend to self-righteous separation. I grieve as if they didn't have any dirt of their own. They make it a practice to latch on to people who think just like them. That should never exist in the church, beloved. The gospel shapes our relationships. Listen to me. And we cheapen the death and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus when we resort to filthy separation and cliques amongst one another to the exclusion of other people. Amen? The gospel reshapes our relationships. We all came the same way. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. You're a sinner saved by grace. And you are to live that way, broken before Almighty God as a believer, humbly dependent upon the Lord in our, in our interaction with one another in the way that we love each other. I pray that this church, beloved, would be known for our diligence to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in truth and in love, and thus magnify the name of Christ and His atoning work, beloved preserving the indestructible unity that he's established already by virtue of his death and resurrection. I pray that that's the type of a church that we, that we should be. And by unity, I don't mean uniformity. We're not clones walking around the church, right? We're not called to be people who are exact replicas of one another. We all come from different backgrounds and upbringings and race, and we are all holding various opinions. We are all very culturally different, social standing, whatever. But the beauty of the gospel, beloved, is that in our fellowship with Christ, we are one. There's uniqueness and yet diversity in the body of Christ. In Christ, we are one. So there ought to be no rivalries in the church, beloved. None. Rivalries should not exist in our church. 
This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when addressing division in the Corinthian church and rivalries, asks them, has Christ been divided in 1 Corinthians 1.13? Has Christ been divided? And the answer that the Corinthians should have given him is, no, Paul, Christ has not been divided. That's impossible. And Paul, right before that, says that basically don't be about saying, I am a Paul, I am of Apollos, I am a Cephas, and I have Christ. Why? Because Christ has not been divided. There's one body of Christ, and there's one Hefe in the church. Who's the Hefe? Christ. He's the ruler. What he says goes. There's one king in the church, and that is King Jesus, by virtue of the fact that he's the Savior and the Lord and the one whom God has highly exalted to his right hand. See? One chief. That is Jesus. At the end of the day, beloved, it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. It only matters what Jesus says in his word. That's what matters. Jesus Christ. So we unify around what his word says. See? We unify around what he says. And we strive to live out Christ-exalting fellowship, beloved, by actively pursuing loving relationships with one another that are shaped by the gospel, seeking to preserve the unity of the bond of peace that Jesus Christ has established. Amen? Second question that I have for you is this. Are you relentlessly partnering with other believers for the progress of the gospel? Are you relentlessly partnering with other believers for the progress of the gospel. What we see in this letter, this Philippian letter, is that these believers were far from passive spectators. Simply standing around, watching Paul and others be about the work of the ministry while they did nothing to contribute. See? This was a church, listen to me, of highly committed participants. A church of highly committed participants. And I want to tell you why. Because these Philippians had a partnership mindset. They had a partnership mindset. They viewed themselves, and Paul has already alluded to this in chapter 1, verse 5 and verse 7, with those words, fellowship, participants, co-partakers of grace. They viewed themselves as co-laborers in a great enterprise called the gospel. Co-participants for the progress of the gospel, see? Like a soldier going to boot camp and now you're in the, the armed forces. And if you're going to war, you don't stay behind. You go to war too, right? Same thing with these Philippian believers. They viewed themselves as we're part of this. We're all in it and we're going to be contributors. See, they viewed themselves that way. Now, it's one thing to give lip service to that. It's quite another thing to put your resources and your energy and your time behind that profession. All of us can say, oh, great, committed to Christ committed to fellowship with other believers, and we, and we survey your life, there's nothing that shows that. These Philippian believers were so devoted to partnership ministry that you could see it in the way that they used their resources for Paul's ministry because he was a man committed to the gospel, and they viewed themselves in partnership with Paul for the progress of the gospel. And I want you to see this in chapter 4. Go there with me. Philippians 4 and verse 10. Here Paul begins to express his thanksgiving for these Philippian believers who had given him financial support. And I want you to see this. Chapter 4, verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. What is Paul talking about? Well, the Philippian church had sent one of their own members named Epaphroditus on a 30 to 40 day journey on a ship 
where he almost dies on the way because they're concerned for Paul, who is incarcerated in Rome on house arrest. And they're worried about him and they're concerned for him. So they want to send one of their own Epaphroditus to check up on Paul and to deliver yet another gift from this little Philippian church. That's what he's talking about. And Paul wants to express his thanksgiving to them. And in verses 11 through 13, he even uses the, the uh, occasion of this giving of this gift to teach them concerning contentment. And he talks about the fact that whether it's in poverty, whether it's in, in, in uh, uh, prosperity, he says, it's not even about the money, it's about contentment, he says. And he teaches them that. I can do all things through him who strengthens me in verse 13. Nevertheless, verse 14, he affirms them. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Notice. That is a derivative of the word koinonia. They're sharing. They're sharing uh, in his own affliction. These resources that they're sending. Verse 15. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left for Macedonia, no church, church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs, he says. Not that I give, I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. You know what? In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul alludes to this group of generous churches in the region of Macedonia. Philippi was one of those cities within the region of Macedonia. And in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul alludes to the fact that these churches, out of their own poverty, gave for the gospel ministry. And the Philippians are one of those churches who was not rich, yet they gave of their own resources for the progress of the gospel. See? On more than one occasion, they have showed their partnership in this gospel ministry by giving of their own resources out of their own poverty for the progress of the gospel. See? And Paul affirms them. And he says, I don't seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Verse 18, but I have received everything in full and have in abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus, which you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You know what Paul says? At the end of the day, guys, God was always going to provide for me. I received this. I am amply supplied. And you know what I love? The fact that in your giving, Philippians, you, your gift is an, is an offering of a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. At the end of the day, it's all worship to Almighty God whose enterprise the gospel is. See? So beautiful. And Paul affirms them. So these believers show their mindset of partnership in this gospel enterprise by giving of their own resources. And not only that, we've alluded to Epaphroditus in verse 18, who's the one who delivers this gift, and he almost dies on the way. Turn back with me in chapter 2. Just a page back in chapter 2 in verse 23. Or rather, verse 25. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. He's sending Epaphroditus back to them now. My brother, notice how he describes him. My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. Here's this partnership language again. Fellow worker, co-worker, if you will. This comrade on the soldier field, if you will, or the battlefield. Who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. 
For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Paul says, I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you. Thank you for sending him to me. On the way, he almost died, and you were so concerned. And you know what? I'm so concerned about you, Philippians, Paul says, that I want to send him back to you now so that you could be encouraged, so that then I could be encouraged, see? And Epaphroditus is going to get there. He's going to encourage the Philippians about the fact that Paul's encouraged, and Paul's going to be more encouraged because the Philippians and Epaphroditus are all the more encouraged. And that type of mutual encouragement happens when we have a partnership mindset. See? Verse 29. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. And listen to this. Because he came close to death for the work of Christ. Risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. See? At the end of the day, I want you guys... To all be rejoicing in the fact that Epaphroditus is coming back because at the end of the day, these types of men give themselves for the progress of the gospel. This is a, this partnership mindset from Paul, see? And these Philippians had learned this type of mindset from the apostle. Over and over again, do a survey of, in the New Testament. And this idea of partnership ministry in the gospel, that we are co-laborers in one team together. Paul talks about Aquila and Priscilla in Romans chapter 16. Paul talks about Titus as his fellow worker and his partner in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Onesimus and Tychicus, beloved brothers in the gospel, he calls them in Colossians chapter 4. Aristarchus, he calls my fellow prisoner, who this guy Aristarchus probably went as far as go and spend time with Paul in prison just to care for Paul, even though he didn't need to be in prison. Just because Aristarchus sees Paul as a minister of the gospel, and he's in partnership with Paul because of the gospel, see? And who can forget about Peter and John Mark and Barnabas and Silas and on and on the list it goes, beloved. Partners in the gospel. And who can forget about the women who co-labored with our Lord Jesus Christ, amen? During the gospels, all these women are constantly around our Lord, serving the apostles, caring for them, always involved, in the book of Acts, we see those women again, co-laborers in the, in, in the gospel uh, enterprise. That's what it's all about. This partnership ministry mindset is all over the place here. And my point is this. There is no room, beloved, for a mavericky approach to ministry in the church. There is no room for this individualistic mindset and perspective in the church. We are all partners moving together cohesively in one direction for one great cause. And that is what? The advancement of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. See? We're all in partnership together. Listen. A right understanding of the fellowship that we share with Christ should lead us to see one another as co-laborers in one enterprise. No matter what context God has us in. One enterprise. And because of the work of the gospel is so great on the earth, none of us can do that individualistic, right? We need one another. That's part of the reason why God formed one church. There are no lone rangers in the church, beloved. None. There are no lone rangers. There are no mavericks in the church. We all need one another. We need to be in partnership together, moving cohesively in one direction together to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what we need to be about. But what is this mission? This mission is the progress of the gospel. 
And I do agree many times when we throw that terminology out, I think we need to define it all the more. By progress of the gospel, what we see in Scripture, and especially here as we're going to see, are two things, evangelism and edification. We advance the gospel via evangelism and edification. And I want you to see this in chapter 1 and verse 12, okay? Here Paul, in chapter 1 and verse 12, updates the Philippians on how he is doing. They have heard that he's on house arrest in Rome. They are probably wondering what's his perspective like. This is the guy who used to run around training leaders all over the place, planting churches, encouraging believers. And now he's on house arrest. Is Paul encouraged, discouraged? What's going on? Paul is going to tell us right now. Verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, he says. That word there, progress, is the Greek word prokopane, which basically means an advancing army, removing obstacles so that the army can advance amidst opposition. See? Removing all obstacles so that that army can advance. He says, contrary to what you may think, I'm actually quite optimistic, he says, because the gospel is advancing. Notice he doesn't say, I'm out of jail. Hey, I'm free. My circumstances are favorable. Now the gospel can advance. See? He says, no. The gospel is advancing, and we want to see why. Verse 13, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. You know what Paul was doing while in prison? There are these Roman soldiers called the Praetorian Guard who are highly, highly prestigious individuals who guard, who, who guard the, the emperor palace. And they are all in intervals of six hours tied to Paul. And what do you think that Paul was doing with them? Sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel with them. There's evangelism happening in the center point of the primary power on earth. The Praetorian Guard is being evangelized. And a bunch of other people too. Because he alludes to everyone else as well. See? So much so that in chapter 4 and verse 21, the closing words of Paul to the Philippians, he says this. In 421, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of who? Caesar's household. See? Romans are coming to know Christ amidst Paul's suffering and circumstances. People are being evangelized, see? And the gospel is advancing amidst opposition by people coming to know Christ. Conversions are happening. What about edification? Look at verse 14. And that most of the brethren, back in chapter 1, verse 14, most of the brethren, he's talking about believers, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. You know what else is happening? Believers look at Paul's circumstances and his attitude and his impact for the gospel there on house arrest, and believers are growing in the faith. They're growing in their trust in the Lord because of Paul's imprisonment. They are growing in boldness to preach the gospel all the more. They're taking courage to take the name of Christ to other people. See, there's edification, building up happening. Gospel progress is about evangelism. And once you get those baby believers in, we start building them up. Amen? In the faith. That's what's happening. And Paul says, as long as the gospel is advancing, everything's quite good. It doesn't matter, my circumstances. And so committed is he to this gospel mission of advancing the gospel, that there are even individuals that he mentions in verses 15 through 18. 
here in chapter 1 that he talks about two different kinds of brothers in Christ. They're both evidently brothers because he never calls the, the one side heretical or he never confronts them. There are these guys who are preaching Christ, but they don't necessarily care for Paul very much. And there are these other guys who are also preaching Christ, who love Paul and know that he's appointed for the progress of the gospel. These other guys are rivals, these other uh, preachers. And Paul says, what do I do with that? Verse 18, what then? What do I do with those who don't like me personally, but they're proclaiming Christ? He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. See? And I rejoice in this. Yes, and I will rejoice, he says. Paul was so committed to the gospel that at the end of the day, what people thought about him was subordinate to the fact that the gospel was advancing, see? So, so driven by this perspective. If Christ is proclaimed, I rejoice. As long as people are coming to know Christ, evangelism, and people are being built up in Christ, edification, I am happy because that's why I'm here, says Paul. And beloved, listen to me, that's why you are here on this earth if you are a Christian. You are here to advance the cause of the gospel. You are here to be built built up in Christ that you would be living a holy life, becoming more and more like Christ and seeking to reproduce yourself into other people, beginning with sharing your faith so that other baby baby believers might come to know Christ and they may be built up in the faith so that that Christ would be formed in them as well. That's why you and I are here. And so I want to ask you, are you striving to advance the gospel by evangelizing? Are you sharing your faith? Well, campus, you know, we have have the evangelism team who's gifted to do that here. I'm not gifted. I'm not a gifted evangelist. The evangelist, we're an evangelistic church because we have an evangelism team. I bet you anything that the evangelism team, if I were to bring them up here right now, they want all of us sharing the gospel. They don't view themselves as the way, the only way that Calvary Bible Church proclaims Christ here on this earth at all. In fact, they are trying to invest into a culture in our church more and more via the media and testimonies and whatever so that we as God's people might be evangelizing, proclaiming Christ, beloved, wherever we are at. Where is the zeal for the unconverted? Where is it? We are all called to be evangelists, beloved. All of us are called to do that. Have you forgotten that someone once shared a beautiful message with you? Have you forgotten that? Have you forgotten about the fact that somebody shared with you the message that a a holy and loving God sent His Son, Jesus, into the world to die for your sins so that you might be pardoned of your sins and that you might not receive the, the punishment of God's wrath and go to hell? Have you forgotten about that? Where's the burden for the unconverted? Where is it at? Have you forgotten that you have been rescued from hell? Are you seeking to pluck others out of hell? Hell's fires. Don't you want others to enter into that fellowship with Christ as well? Are you burdened for the lost, beloved? I read a quote the other day, a preacher saying, I wish every preacher, and I would say Christian, would see the fires of hell for five seconds if perhaps this may make them more earnest to preach Christ. Would our perspective change if we were to see people condemned for eternity in hell where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? Nobody wants to go to hell, right? Nobody does. 
And you must do that boldly, proclaiming the gospel no matter what. To the point where even if somebody counters you and they are hostile to the gospel. A few years ago, I was invited to to speak at some little rinky-dink radio station. And on there, I started sharing the gospel with some guys who called in, atheists. And we got to the point where these guys basically said, you know what? Well, then I'll go to hell because that's where all the fun is. And I said, I got news for you. Hell is not one big party. Hell is outer darkness, and you're all by yourself. There's nobody, nobody next to you. Not a friend, not even the sense of God's presence. In this world, at least a godless man knows that God is someplace out there. Romans 1. The godless, profane man knows that someplace, even on his deathbed, he can cry and say, Oh God, forgive me, but in hell, there is no God in hell. There is no God, there is no devil, there are no demons. Everyone is suffering eternal punishment for their sins. You're all by yourself. Oh, beloved, that we would have a burden for the unconverted. That we would remember that we were there. Such were some of us. But we were washed and we were cleansed, see? That's why Paul says in Romans, when I'm eager to preach the gospel, eager, because he sees himself as a debtor, 1 Corinthians 9.16, he says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel, he says. 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See, the ministry of reconciliation belongs to all of us. We are ambassadors. We are those people sent into hostile territory, proclaiming, repent, turn from your sin, turn from your rebellion, because the King is coming. The king is coming, but there is hope for you if you would bow down to the king. See, we are ambassadors in the ministry of reconciliation. How many of us are sharing our faith? How many of us are doing that? 1 Corinthians 9.23, Paul says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Paul's passion was to preach the gospel. I want to ask you, are you actively striving not only to advance the gospel by evangelizing? Are you striving to invest yourself into other Christians and edifying other believers here in the church? Are you seeking to do that? I want to tell you right now, somebody asked me recently, why are you always talking about discipleship? Why are you always talking about this need that we have to invest into one another? And my answer was, because Jesus said so. Jesus said, make what? Disciples, reproduce yourself. Disciples reproduce themselves into other, dis- uh, other people. They tell people about Christ. Jesus said it. But I want to tell you right now, the other reason why I so believe that we ought to be invested into one another is because of the fact that people for 21 years since I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ have invested into me. I stand before you as a man saved by grace, the product of people, individuals, women, and men for 21 years investing into my life. Edifying me, building me up in the faith, talking to me about about my struggles, encouraging me, crying with me, lifting me up, exhorting me, confronting me when there was sin, calling me. To be a lover of my wife and a lover of my kids. To be a servant in the church, see? 
Beloved, have you forgotten what it was like when others came alongside of you and helped you in your Christian growth? Have you forgotten about that? See, you and I are a byproduct of people loving us and equipping us and serving us for years and years and years and sacrificially giving of themselves for us. As a result, you you and I have grown up in Christ. We become more like Jesus. The gospel has advanced in our life. We have grown into conformity to Christ because of all the people investing into us. And I want to ask you, in the same way, don't you want people to be built up in the gospel as well? Don't you want people becoming more like Jesus? Don't you want them being built up in the faith? Don't you want to use your God-given gifts and abilities and time and resources for the sake of helping others grow? Why would you be selfish? Why would you do that? Why would you be selfish as a believer and never give anything to anyone else? God has given you a set of gifts to use, to employ them in serving one another, beloved, building others up, edifying them in the faith. See, you can be an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. And Why would you withhold that? Why would you take God's gifts and God's experiences that he's allowed you to go through and not invest them into somebody else? Why would you do that? I just can't fathom that. We must give ourselves to evangelism, beloved. We must give ourselves to edification. And we will do well to revisit our roots in the book of Acts and see how they did this. They shared Christ, so compelled and captivated by the the risen, exalted Jesus. He's so beautiful that they want to tell everybody about him. And it doesn't matter if they persecute them. Lashes and everything. Stuck in prison. They sing when they're beaten in the book of Acts. Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. Where's the vision? Where's the common mission and purpose? That's what we're partnering together, amen? For the progress of the gospel. That's why we're here. We are partners in this great chief enterprise of the gospel, beloved. The mindset is partnership. The mission is the advancement of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we are here. We have fellowship and a common purpose and mission. That's why we're here. See how this is much bigger than any of us? Much bigger. It is not about, beloved, plain churchianity, is it? It's not. Come in and seeing who's preaching next. Come in and seeing who's going to be leading worship. Come in and seeing the latest attraction here at Calvary. That's not what this is about. Don't play churchianity. Don't just attend church Sunday mornings, filling the pews with warm bodies, checking out the action, getting some emotional high, and there's no commitment, beloved, to Christ and to his people. Because you're revealing more about what you're about and where you're at spiritually, beloved, than anything else. Listen. Christianity is the only entity that I can think of where we put up with half-hearted commitment. I, I, I scratch my head. Why is it that firemen and doctors and, and police officers and you name it in the secular world, they go and they get this training, rigid training, and soldiers so that they can be positioned to save a life and give themselves for a particular cause. And yet in Christianity... You and I have been delivered from the wrath of God and we're just sitting around being complacent. Half-hearted commitment. 
I want to challenge you this morning that if you are not actively participating in the progress of the gospel, beloved, you need to ask yourself some tough questions. And I say that in all love for you. Either you are not a Christian or you are a very unhealthy one and you're on a slippery slope. You are. Slowly but surely shriveling up. And it'll come back to bite you later on. Please, I plead with you. Be a highly committed participant like these Philippians were. See? With a mindset of partnership. With a, with a singular mission where they were all cohesively moving in one direction together for the faith of the gospel. So I say to some of you, get off the sidelines, Christians. Get off the sidelines. Stop living apathetic lives, comfortable lives, shooting the breeze while your fellow Christians are are serving Christ. And I don't say this because God needs any of us. God certainly doesn't need Kempis Hernandez. But what a privilege to be able to serve the, the King and Savior of the world. Amen? What a privilege it is to be able to do that. Let's be like those Haiti Dominican Republic brethren who realized that they had a precious fellowship in Christ, beloved, and they were to love one another, flesh out this Christ-exalting fellowship in the gospel by cultivating loving relationships in the gospel, seeking to partner with one another for the progress of the gospel, see? This is living out Christ-exalting fellowship, beloved. And I want to encourage you this morning. If you are here and you do not know Christ, I pray that you would enter into fellowship with God in Christ today. I pray that you would. Your greatest need is to be delivered from the wrath of God. And God, because of his great love for you, sent his son into the world to die for your sins so that you might be pardoned, forgiven of your sins, so that the power of sin may be broken in your life, so that, so that the punishment of God's wrath may no longer be, you may not be no longer under that wrath. I pray that you would be reconciled to God. And there are going to be some lovely people out front here who are more than happy to speak to you about that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for glorifying yourself by sending your son Jesus into the world, Lord, to save sinners like us. I thank you that you have raised him from the dead, victorious over sin and death, that you have glorified yourself by exalting him to your right hand, and that by faith in him we can enter into fellowship with you. I pray that our hearts, Lord, would be to glorify you in the way we live out the implications of our fellowship with you, that we would be people who would love one another because of our great salvation, that we would partner with one another for the advancement of the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.